Expert Insights is an ongoing medical education podcast. The Carl Division of Continuing Education designates that each episode of this enduring material is worth a maximum of 0.25 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. To collect credit, please click on the link and complete the episode's post-test. This podcast forum is brought to you to share expertise and insights within our integrated delivery system to help us improve the health of the people we serve and achieve world-class accessible care. This is Expert Insights. Here's your host, Melanie Cole. Many American men and women suffer from urinary incontinence, and they don't tell anybody because they may be embarrassed or they may think nothing can be done, so they suffer in silence. My guest today is Dr. Leon Plowright. He's a urogynecologist at the Carl Foundation Hospital. Dr. Plowright, tell us a little bit about what you see as far as prevalence and societal impact of incontinence. What's different now about what we know about it and what we know about treatments available? Well, I I get quite a few patients who... um... They come in to see us in the office, and I sense there's a little bit of reluctance to talk about the condition. So that is, I believe, the the focus of of our urogynecology field initiative now is to raise awareness, to raise awareness that it's quite often that we see this type of condition. It could be as high as up to 50% of adult women experiencing urinary incontinence. Now, the problem is there's, again, a degree of embarrassment. There's, you know, a great deal of impact on the quality of life, sexual function, and the burden that it requires, uh, the burden on caregivers. So what we're trying to do is really reach out to our communities uh, locally, regionally, and talk about the condition and talk about the treatment options. Now, the treatment options have always been available, but we're moving more and more to create more, I guess, minimally invasive approaches. So we have a little bit more to offer to our patients, non-surgical and surgical options. Um, And we sort of just climb up the ladder depending on where each individual is in terms of the severity of their leakage and what they've done before. Is incontinence a normal part of aging? Because that may be part of that discussion and people are afraid or embarrassed and they think it's just something they have to endure and that it's a normal part of aging. Absolutely. I think that's one of the misconceptions. While it does, the severity of urinary incontinence does increase with age, it's not something that should be you know, accepted as part of the aging process because we have things or... um, we have interventions that can assist patients with dealing with this condition. So again, part of what we're trying to do is just to educate the public that while age is one of the components that kind of lend itself to incontinence, we really need to push to seek treatment and seek help earlier rather than later. How would you advise other providers, whether they are primary care providers or geriatric providers, how would you advise them to start? And when would you advise them to start that discussion, to ask the questions, are you having incontinence? Do you suffer from leakage? I think, you know, there is some reported urinary incontinence as early as 20 years of age. 
But I believe that the primary group is probably around the age of 40. You, you, I think that's the time where you sort of have to start that conversation. And there are really easy questionnaires out there that you can use to sort of raise the conversation within your general you know, office visit. And once you raise the conversation once or twice, then maybe the third time around, you may say, do you want to see someone for that? There's a urogynecologist or a urologist that specializes in women's uh, care or even a pelvic floor physical therapist. Those are places that you can really get a starting point and then move from that point on. I love that idea, that, that you're offering up the other providers that specialize in this particular situation. What does treatment look like these days? And start with, obviously, the non-invasive treatments. You mentioned pelvic floor physical therapy. Tell us about that. Right. You know, I think a lot of people have a great deal of a misconception of pelvic floor therapy, or they confuse pelvic floor therapy with Kegel exercises. A lot of my patients, they come in and they say, you know, I've been doing pelvic floor exercises, and I ask them, what have you been doing? And they say, Kegel exercises. And then we do an examination, and I'm checking their muscle strength within the pelvic region, and they're contracting, but they're not contracting their pelvic floor muscles. They're actually contracting their gluteal muscles. So to me, Kegel exercises is, is a start. But really where we want to get you to is a pelvic floor physical therapist because they're able to really give you the feedback that's necessary for you to understand the intricate muscles within the pelvic floor and understand how to activate its contraction and its relaxation. So my approach is, as far as non-invasive kind of things that we can do is, first is to raise an awareness of the pelvic floor, how it functions, talk about the function of the bladder, how you um, uh, fill your bladder, how you empty your bladder, and just having a, a, a good understanding of that helps you to figure out how to um, kind of time your void. Uh, some people who have urinary incontinence, if we teach them how to time their voids to say, hey, even though you may not feel the need to, to go to the bathroom, try to void every two to three hours or every every three hours, that tends to decrease the, the rate of urinary incontinence. And then the next step is um, being cognizant of the, the, the fluid that you're taking in. So sometimes patients, they drink a lot of fluid, right? And they don't realize that what goes in has to come out. So what I tend to do for those people that I have a suspicion that they're drinking quite a bit more than the normally expected amount is I give them a bladder diary. So the bladder diary helps them to you know, understand what's really happening with them because they may think they're having leakage um, that's not controllable by the amount of fluid that they drink. Um, now, that's not to say that if you have urinary leakage, you should stop drinking fluid. It's just to say, just be cognizant of, of the fact that if you drink a whole lot, you may have accidents and you may need, you may find a need to go to the bathroom quite often. So those are kind of some simple things that we do bladder diary, um, time voids, pelvic floor physical therapy. And then as we move up the ladder, there are other things that we can, um, we can introduce patients to. There is a device um, that can be 
purchased over the counter. It's a device called a poison pressa, and it's not a tampon, and it's it's not necessarily a, a pessary either. And we'll talk about a pessary, but it's a way in which we can place a device inside of the vagina, and that device kind of supports the urethra. So when you have an increase in intra-abdominal pressure, such as with laughing, coughing, or sneezing, then there's some support underneath the urethra, and that tends to uh, help you to maintain continence. That device I typically use for patients that most of their leakage occurs during time of physical activities such as exercising, running, but otherwise when they're walking about on a day-to-day basis, they don't really have much incontinence. So that's a really neat device to have at your disposal. And I have quite a few patients who really want to use that device as opposed to moving forward with surgery. Next level up is a pessary. You can use a pessary. It's it's like a diaphragm-like device we place inside of the vagina, and it has a little knob at the tail end. And that knob tends to support the urethra, and that may decrease the amount of incontinence episodes just as the Impressa does, the poison Impressa. So those are mainly uh, the main options that we have for patients. Now, there are other sophisticated options, but we tend not to do use them here. There's some urethral plugs. I haven't seen those on the market here in the U.S., so I don't really offer those to patients. Um, and moving up from that um, platform or from that site, um, we're talking about surgery. And surgery can be a long list of different things. What about medicational intervention? People even see in the media medications available to help with incontinence. Where do those fit into this timeline, doctor? Yes, I'm glad that you bring it up because the the conversational piece just a moment ago was mainly addressing stress urinary incontinence. Now, stress urinary incontinence is the most predominant um, a type of incontinence that we see. Now, there is incontinence that is caused by urinary urgency and frequency and also urge incontinence. And that kind of lies in the category of what we call overactive bladder or detrusor instability. So that is where medications really play a role. We often start patients on what is called an anticholinergic medication, and that uh, tends to decrease the contractility of the bladder, and that maintains urinary continence. So, again, we're talking about two different types of incontinence. One is overactive bladder, and one is stress urinary incontinence. The stress urinary incontinence we talked about, the overactive bladder is what we're talking about now, and that's where medications play a role. Now, there are a couple of caveats to medication use. The overactive bladder medications, they're anticholinergic, so they have some side effects. They affect not only the bladder, but they affect the eyes, the bowel, and so forth, so they can result in dry mouth, dry eyes, and constipation. So you want to warn your patients about this. The additional thing is um, glaucoma. If you have closed-angle glaucoma, these are medications that we're not to prescribe for those kind of uh, patients because that can worsen their condition. The other medication on the market is beta-3 agonist. It's called Merbegron, and this medication 
doesn't have the side effects of dry mouth, dry eyes, or constipation. But it should be used with caution with individuals with elevated blood pressure that's not controlled. If it's controlled, then you can use the medication. Um, studies have shown that this medication may raise the blood pressure. A newer study has shown that the combination of the two medications, a beta-3 agonist and an anticholinergic medication, may be more efficacious than one alone. And the two medications um, that were studied was Merbegron and Vesicare. So that's also an option that you can, provided that insurances will allow, you can offer to your patients because I believe it's now FDA-approved for that reason. What great information and good points all. Dr. Plowright, thank you for clearing so much of that up for us. Wrap it up. What would you like other providers to take away from this? As you've stressed a number of times, awareness is the key. Awareness of the treatment options out there and getting people to discuss it, to talk about it. Give us your best advice. My best advice is to start early. Once you have that conversation early, you start with the screening at the age of 40 or so. Um, you start that conversation, and then we can move them through the pipeline. And the pipeline is this. Either send them to a urogynecologist or a pelvic floor therapist, and then we get the conversation started, and then we could work together to get them to where they need to be. But I think it's the upfront conversation that is needed well before um, it's often had. And I often see patients in their 80s, 70s, and nothing has been done. And quite frankly, at that time, my hands are tied because there's so many um, risk factors to maybe medication or surgery or things of that nature that makes it difficult for me to get them the treatment that they need. Uh, there's a lot of um, caregiver uh, burden um, that we have to kind of get through. But if we start it early, we'll be able to mitigate all of that. We'll get them in the pipeline earlier, sooner rather than later. And, you know, we talked about the medications, uh, the anticholinergic medications. Those are just to start. But there has been some evidence of dementia and memory problems with those patients. So we sort of don't want to linger with the medication throughout their lifetime. We want to kind of continue the conversation and get them to third-line therapy before it's too late for us to do so um, and maintain some of their cognition. So the takeaway is screen, screen, and screen early. What a great key message. Dr. Plowright, thank you again for joining us and for informing other providers of the importance of screening talking with their patients and getting an early start so that you're not limited in your treatment options. Thank you again. You're listening to Expert Insights with the Carl Foundation Hospital. For a listing of Carl providers and to view Carl-sponsored educational activities, please visit carlconnect.com. That's carlconnect.com. We hope the information gained will be applicable to your work and life. This is Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for tuning in.